This is an ABC podcast. Hi, it's Natasha Mitchell joining you from Wurundjeri Country with Science Friction. Who's going to save us? It's a good question. It's also the name of a great new ABC podcast. Who's Going to Save Us is your place to hear a whole lot of ripping stories of people doing stuff, truly practical stuff, to steer us quickly out of climate change chaos, including Saul Griffith. Now, he's a doer of so much stuff. He's hard to put into words. Inventor, engineer... Uh, key advisor on US President Joe Biden's energy policy, and that's all just before breakfast. He's also founder of the non-profits Rewiring Australia and Rewiring America, which are coming up with this vision for how we can and must electrify everything, effectively rewiring the world. And you're about to hear why. But before Saul was advising presidents, back in the day, he was this grungy young environmental activist. I was questioned by the police after blockading the Sydney Harbour Bridge the night before Australia refused to be a signature on the Kyoto Agreement. I think that was 1997. In the late 90s, Saul was a young uni student campaigning on two wheels. I was part of a wonderful group of ratbags called Critical Mass, which basically was people who like riding bicycles and believe there should be more pedestrian pathways, more cycle pathways in Sydney, more bicycles and clean transportation in the mix. would gather every Friday evening and sort of have a party on two wheels and ride through the streets. And sometimes Critical Mass didn't just stop a few streets of traffic to get their message out. Sometimes they were way more ambitious and made a whole city take notice. And back in 1997, guess which engineering graduate turned uh, cadet ABC science journalist was there to capture the action? Me. It's peak hour in the middle of Sydney on a Friday afternoon. And I'm surrounded by hundreds of bicycles. I'm on a bike myself. Hundreds and hundreds of bicycles in what amounts to an international event that's happening in over 60 cities around the world as we speak. We are about, believe it or not, donned in blue flags to embark on a journey over the Sydney Harbour Bridge, that icon of dense traffic. This is a global action to voice concern about the decisions being made about greenhouse emissions in Kyoto. (laughs) Oh, my God, I must be about 12, Ben. You'd better believe it. Anyway, I didn't meet or interview Saul that day, but he, he did get on the blower with a prominent Sydney radio shock jock, all the while holding back peak hour traffic on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I guess being cursed with being the person with an agenda who can talk to radio announcers, I was actually borrowed my sister's cell phone and I was doing an interview. We're riding across the bridge and he's spitting venom in his tirade about how I was ruining the lives of all Australians by trying to bring attention to climate change. Spitting venom on air wasn't the only thing that Shock Jock did that day. I think he did something that there should be law against in journalism is that he handed my phone number on to the police. So when I got to North Sydney, there was, I think, Senior Sergeant Dave Darcy or, or some such had my phone number and called me and we had a chat. Senior Sergeant Dave Darcy ended up being a great guy and became quite an advocate for bicyclists and more bicycle parts. So I don't know, it all worked out in the end. 
And it's kind of weird, the parallel twists and turns that lives can take without ever intersecting. Me with a microphone that day as a baby science journalist and Saul with maybe a megaphone was a metallurgical engineer in the making back then. I'd quit a PhD in metallurgical engineering to become a science journo. He went on to do a PhD at MIT in Boston. I eventually did a journalism fellowship at MIT at some stage. He became a big-time inventor and serial startup creator. And Saul got really growing up about climate action. So I'm handing now over to science journalist Joel Werner, Joel's executive producer of the ABC's Who's Gonna Save Us? podcast, and he'll take the story with Dr Saul Griffith from here. We're at Saul's childhood home today, a lovely wooden house tucked away in a green corner of Bardwell Park, a suburb in Sydney's inner south. And it's no accident we're meeting here. You see, Saul has an ambitious plan to fight climate change, one that could drastically cut Australia's greenhouse gas emissions and see money flow back into our local communities. But here's the thing, a lot of Saul's plan is centred around stuff you can change at home. It's an electrified revolution for the Australian household. Who's this? That's Rumpus. Oh yeah, and you you might hear Rumpus the dog scratching around under the table during this interview. Good boy, Rumpus. I work with a wonderful Kiwi called Pete Lynn, and I like the way he said it. He's like, look, climate scientists have done their work. We have to do ours. As engineers, we now need to give the people what they want and fix the climate problem, and that is still possible. We can live modern lives and and have a lot of the things that we all love. This idea is kind of key to Saul's plan, and it's fundamentally different to how we were thinking about climate solutions not that long ago. It was once the mantra that we'd all have to make sacrifices, that modern life and decarbonisation were just incompatible with one another. But these days, Saul reckons we can have our cake and eat it too. You first have to have a question of how much of the change that we need is going to come from behaviour change. I used to be more optimistic, so the youth that was protesting on the Sydney Harbour Bridge wanted to believe that it would be all green leafy paths and the commute to school would be through forests on scooters. That I no longer believe is going to happen. I think you roughly have to solve climate change with a recognisable version of what everyone has today and hopefully a better version of what everyone has today. So the question Saul's trying to answer is how do we keep all the things we know and love about life in a modern society and still get to zero emissions? Well, according to Saul, it all starts with the energy market. Who's making the energy and who's using it? There's a supply and a demand side of the energy system. The supply side is the machines that get our energy for us and convert it into the forms that we like. So that's drilling for oil, getting our coal, moving our coal, pumping our natural gas. And then there's the demand side, which is actually where human beings and we all live. And that's our houses, our cars, our heating systems. And according to Saul, we've been focusing too much on one side of the system at the expense of the other. There's been an overemphasis on the supply side but you have to decarbonise both at the same time. It's a very engineering thing to do, but Saul thinks of the energy system in terms of machines. And the thing about machines is you can count them. So if we try to count the number of machines in Australia... There's 100 million machines on the demand side. So... 
10 or 11 million homes. Each one has 1.8 vehicles, so there's 20 million vehicles. Every one of them has a space heater and a water heater and a stove, and you start adding up all of those machines that are currently burning fossil fuels, we have to replace them all out with something that will have no emissions. Turns out the only something that we can imagine really that's practical that's going to have zero emissions is to electrify all those machines. This is the key idea in Sol's big plan. When any machine that's using fossil fuels dies, because, you know, bolts rust and bearings blow out, we need to replace it with the clean thing. And that clean thing, it's the electric thing. Honestly, you can't separate the supply and the demand and those two things meet in the Australian household, in the Australian small business. So that means we've got to electrify all the cars, you've got to electrify all the water heaters, got to electrify all the space heaters. Kitchen stoves need to become induction or electric. You'll need a few more machines because we're going to need some batteries. The cheapest version of the electricity is going to be our rooftop solar, which Australia has had a big success story on. Our small businesses are largely the same, so it's heating our buildings, cooking, they have vehicles. Anyway, you get up to 100 million pretty quickly there. 100 million machines, all on the demand side of the energy system. But really, it's just a few appliances in your house, plus your car, that currently run on fossil fuels and need to be swapped out to their electric counterparts that can run on renewables. The trick, though, is that we need to do this for every single household and every single building in the country. And then we have the other side of the system, where the energy is being made. And then we've got to decarbonise the supply side, which is currently about a million machines. It's our coal mines, it's the LNG facilities. We have a couple of blast furnaces and steel mills. We have a, a couple of aluminum smelters. And so that's a very different set of problems because those are very expensive machines that are bought by companies once every 20 years. What Saul's trying to do is look at the whole energy system and find the quick and easy ways to cut emissions, the things we can do right now. So we've got a million big expensive machines, we've got 100 million small, relatively cheap machines. And if you try to prioritise the emissions reductions that we can do this decade, however, I think there's a heavy emphasis that we should focus on the demand side. The only place we're going to get those emissions in the Australian economy by 2030 is on the demand side. And what do I mean by that? Like, bluntly, we don't yet have green steel. Bluntly, we don't have green ammonia. Bluntly, we don't have a solution yet for agricultural emissions. And bluntly, green hydrogen isn't going to eliminate any emissions before 2030. And we need to get 50% of the emissions out of the system by 2030. So. The technologies that you can buy today that will eliminate emissions are electric vehicles, electric cooking equipment, heat pumps for water and space heat, and of course, solar and batteries. With the clock ticking on our time to act, Sol says we need to focus on solutions that already exist that we can implement today and not rely on things that might be possible in the future. If we want a target better than two degrees, and we damn well should, we have to electrify every demand side machine as it comes up for replacement. So when your 20-year-old Volvo kicks the bucket, you've got to replace it with electric Hyundai Kona or an electric Polestar or whatever it happens to be. Next time your gas hot water heater kicks the bucket, we need to make it be electric. That's just the reality. 
And that reality is that to fast-track these kind of changes, we're going to have to challenge some long-standing ideas about how our economy works. So people who are fiscally conservative or liberal might say, well, you can't do that. That's not the free market. And the easy response is, well, you had 30 years to try and pull the levers on the free market to influence it. That was the idea behind a carbon tax. But it's too late for the carbon tax to now shift markets fast enough to get us to zero emissions for two degrees. So we now need to be interventionist and design those markets actively, figure out how to get us there on time. If this all sounds a bit politically activist, Saul assures me it's not. He reckons it's a sober, objective analysis of where we're at. Saul says cutting emissions all comes down to how we finance it. We need an economic solution as well as an engineering one. As an engineer, (laughs) that's just the reality of our machines. And you can take the politics out of it. If you want to hit the climate target, we need to make sure that our financing systems and economic systems support this transition on that timeline, that we're doing education and training because we still don't have enough of the trained people to manufacture and install all of those machines. We still have to ramp up the manufacturing of all those machines. Globally, we need to increase the production of electric vehicles 10 to 20 times over. Same with solar, same with wind, same with batteries. So we've got to have a massive ramp up of the manufacturing of those things. Then we have to have massive deployment of those things. And that's going to be a financing job. So we have to align our tax incentives and our banking systems to do that. On Science Friction, on ABC RN, Natasha Mitchell joined this episode by Joel Werner, who's catching up with inventor, engineer and founder of Rewiring Australia and Rewiring America, Saul Griffith, who's on this mission to electrify the world one household at a time. Now, his idea is ambitious, but he thinks it's totally doable and totally necessary. Saul's not just thinking about benefits for the environment. According to him, in 2021, Australian households spent around $5,000 on petrol, diesel, gas and electricity. The impact of the war in Ukraine will push this figure to around $7,000 in 2022. If you could wave a magic wand for an Australian household and have 1.8 electric vehicles in their driveway, an electric heat pump, water heater, electric cooking, electric space heaters solar on their roof, giving them half of the energy they need for all those things. And a battery, they'd actually be saving three to $5,000 a year on energy next year because the electricity is fundamentally just so cheap as a way of doing things compared to the fossil ways at the retail level of the household. But it's the flow-on effects from households that really demonstrate the potential of Saul's plan. If we can make households do better, suddenly whole communities start doing better. I actually think people are underappreciating the possibility for community economic renewal that comes on the back of this, right? So most Australians live in a suburb. Turns out the average suburb has about a thousand households in it. Every year, that community spends about $4 million on petrol and diesel. It creates half a job at the local petrol station that's mostly selling sugar and tobacco anyway. It's like three things that can kill you in one store. But if you think about that community, fast forward 10 years, everyone's driving electric trucks and electric jet skis and electric motorbikes and electric cars, and we're producing the majority of that electricity on our rooftops and in the community, that $4 million a year will be staying in the community. 
And we know just from spending behavior, 55% of that money will be spent in the local community. And that will create a huge number of jobs, not just energy jobs, not just climate jobs, but that'll be paying for newer, better bakeries and the Surf Lifesaving Club gets a new paint coat every couple of years. Like you've got new classrooms going in, you're creating a huge number of local jobs. Like I don't think we've ever really thought about just what a screamingly good thing that will be for every Australian community. We've been culturally paralyzed by the fear of losing some coal jobs. And I totally appreciate those coal communities and that we should be trying to help them through the transition. But we've been so obsessed with that, we've forgotten to look on the good side where actually this is going to create a huge number of jobs. They're going to be in every postcode in Australia. So I think we win on all these good news stories and we've just got to start telling them to ourselves and then calling foul on the politicians that aren't supporting this. And, you know, politicians might be wise to support a transformation like this. According to Saul, if communities are doing better, then the whole country's doing better. You know, by 2030, if we just invested in the Australian households as a category to go on this journey and made sure that everyone could buy the electric hot water heater, the electric car, et cetera, even though we would have to subsidise them a bit for the first few years, it eventually gets better. And ultimately, Australia would be saving 40-odd billion dollars per year on our collective benefit. So as a nation, it now looks like a slam dunk investment. You know, for the price of one submarine, we could decarbonize the entire Australian residential sector and our small businesses and get the majority of those 43% of emissions reductions. 43% is the Albanese government's emissions reduction target for 2030. Could you put the gas fire on us? The other one rattles to me. I can't, it's freezing. it doesn't work. Oh, doesn't it? No. What's wrong with you? The gas. <laughs> this is one of the practical challenges, <laughs> is that there's still an argument in this household, <laughs> mum versus dad on gas versus electric. Aren't you freezing? I'm freezing. Well, you know. <laughs> so, according to Saul, his big plan is going to save households money, funnel investments into communities, make the nation better off economically, and help save the planet. But there's one assumption that's super tricky to model. It's more difficult than modeling energy systems and economics. And it's the assumptions that he makes about people, that everyone's just going to be happy to electrify everything. So what about the cultural attachment that people have to some of these devices? Like, so um, the person who argues that the electric wok is never going to be as good as the wok that's over the gas flame, the, the guy who's tinkering on his car and like, even though we know that like electric vehicles have great acceleration and all this doesn't want to give up his classic car. But sort of how do you factor in those kind of, I guess, very human connections that people have to some of those machines on on the demand side of the ledger. I completely appreciate the sensitivities people have. We underappreciate, for example, the brainwashing that the natural gas industry did, really starting in the 80s with all of this clean blue fame cooking with gas propaganda. They wanted you to become emotionally connected with the gas in your kitchen because the only emotional connection you can have with natural gas is in your kitchen. You don't give a damn about the grey machine in your garage that heats your water. You ask an audience, you know, is your hot water heater gas or electric? And they half of them don't know. 
So the gas industry very consciously made us believe that gas was a great thing to have in your kitchen and a lot of us still believe it. But you can now have electric induction that goes faster for cooking. It uses half the energy and most importantly, it doesn't put nitrous oxide and carbon oxide and other things in the house. So there's a lot of good reasons to go electric in the kitchen. I'm also sympathetic to the classic car people. I own five vehicles whose collective age is over 250 years (laughs) old and I'm quite emotionally attached to all of them by virtue of the fact that my wife has been trying to get rid of at least four of them for 10 years and so far failed. But, you know, I don't mind if there's a 68 Monaro still running on petrol for posterity in 2040. There's a steam train that runs through Wollongong where I live on weekends that still toots the horn and it's quite a lovely thing. You know, we're going to keep a few things around historically, but we don't need every Honda Civic and every Toyota Camry to still run on gas. And, you know, I think actually what people love about the cars is the sheet metal as much as anything else. I have a co-founder at Rewiring America because we're trying to also do this project in the US. And I think he said something very shrewd, which is real change only happens if there is a coalition of the winners, meaning the economic winners. So we're not going to get there with some you know, perfect socialist implementation of the electrification plan. We're going to get there with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs making all of the pieces and gluing it all together and making it a good customer and consumer experience. What does the the young Saul who's like riding his bike over the Harbour Bridge to protest the Kyoto. With like, my what, fist in the air. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so what does young Saul think of that, that, that that's the solution, that the solution has to be profitable? And, and is that the reason that we're finding a lot of action now because people have figured out how to make money off it? When I first started doing a lot of public communication on how to solve climate change. What does the engineering project look like? So 2006, 2007, it was very hard to believe that electric vehicles would get to a price that would make that reasonable. Wind was still very expensive. The generation cost alone was 25 cents per kilowatt hour. Solar was still at 30 or 40 cents a kilowatt hour in those years. And so it was hard to imagine, economically hard to imagine. I think by about 2015, you know, wind at that point was four or five cents a kilowatt hour cheaper than gas or coal generation, solar sometimes as low as three or four cents. Now it's even cheaper. And then electric cars were sort of finally practical and it's now imaginable that that totally works. So I do think these things are economic. But this idea of a coalition of the winners, it has a flip side. If you think about the resistance against climate action, it's the coalition of the old winners, and they don't want to give up their lovely monopoly. And according to Saul, this coalition of the old winners is well organised and it's been playing the game for a long time. I do far too much political work, and I can see that the good side, the coalition of the winners, are not working nicely together and aren't really showing up, and we're being outspent hundred dollars to one by gas industry lobbyists, by coal industry, oil industry lobbyists. And we need the coalition of winners that is going to be the solar installers and the clean electric home builders associations and the electric vehicle manufacturers and the electric appliance manufacturers and the solar panel manufacturers. They all now need to represent as the coalition that has the answers so that they can rewrite the rules, the regulations, the subsidies so that our politics works for this new world. Saul's big idea is built around the Australian household. 
But if it's going to work, it's got to include every household, not just those that can afford to electrify. Unless we figure out how to bring everyone along, I think the political project fails. It's pretty easy to imagine that you know, the top 10% of houses can probably pay cash to solve this problem for their own emissions. The next 50% can probably get a loan against their mortgage, but like, how do you bring the 40% of households after that along for the ride? And 20% of that is social housing, so that'll need help. But hopefully the coalition of the winners includes groups that really represent the renters, the low-income people, and help them come along on this journey because, you know, I think it's fairly evident in the statement that you don't half solve climate change. <laughs> if only the richest 50% can afford it, we're not all the way there. So we need to really figure out how to do it. And the reality is it's in fact low income households that stand to benefit the most, right? High income household only spends two or 3% of all of their expenditures on energy. It's like negligible. They spend more on alcohol. For the bottom 20% of households, it's 10, 15, 20% of their weekly income that goes on energy. And so they will proportionally stand to win a hell of a lot more if we do this electrification project correctly. Dr. Saul Griffith is author of The Big Switch, Australia's Electrical Future. And he was speaking there with my colleague, Joel Werner, who is executive producer of a new ABC podcast. Check it out. It's called Who's Gonna Save Us? Its first series has landed. It's full of a whole lot of great, hopeful, practical stories. And you can find Who's Gonna Save Us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you love catching up with your podcasts. And you can catch up with the whole Science Friction archive while you're there too. Hey, thanks to sound engineers, Hamish Camilleri and Angie Grant and I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.